Ecclesiastes 3.1. To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven. To everything there is a season, and most especially a season for the day of judgment. For every man and woman there is a season, even a time of reckoning, a time to stand before God in judgment. I need to know by what criteria I will be judged. I really need to know. A time, a season approaches, known as the great white throne judgment, and books are involved. Revelation twenty eleven through 15, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books, according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man, according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death." And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Books are involved, but one book in particular stands above the rest and actually dictates what is written in the other books of judgment. Revelation 20 verse 15 calls this book, which stands alone, the book of life. Revelation 21:27 adds these defining words. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. This Lamb's book of life is the book of Holy Ghost birth certificates. One's new name is recorded in this glorious book of life when one is born, born again, born a literal second time, this time as a child of God. John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The believer's name is added to the Lamb's book of life when he, as a lost son of Adam, repents of his sin, believing upon the mighty Christ and his sin-cleansing blood. At this place called born again, one's name is recorded, and a journey begins. A departure takes place, and the end of this trip is eternal life. Second Timothy 2.19 Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are his, and let every one that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. At this place called born again, one dies to this world and its bondages and becomes alive unto Christ and everything changes, absolutely everything. Second Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. At this place called born again, all of the pages in the book of judgment regarding the sinful deeds and thoughts of one's old man, are cut out and buried with Christ. Romans 6, 4 through 6, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, 
that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. A day of reckoning, the season of judgment approaches rapidly. Are you born again? Will today be the day your record of sin is expunged from the books of judgment? Will you become a new creature today and begin a brand new journey, a journey whose destiny is glorious eternal life? Do it now while the door is still open for you. Click on the Further with Jesus right now for childlike instructions and immediate entry into the kingdom of God. Now for today's subject. God said, Job chapter 41, verse 1, and verses 14 through 21. Canst thou draw out Leviathan with an hook, or his tongue with a cord which thou lettest down? Who can open the doors of his face? His teeth are terrible round about. His scales are his pride, shut up together as with a close seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They stick together that they cannot be sundered. By his kneesings a light doth shine, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. Out of his mouth go burning lamps, and sparks of fire leap out. Out of his nostrils goeth smoke, as out of a seething pot or cauldron. His breath kindleth coals, and a flame goeth out of his mouth. God said, Isaiah chapter 14, verse 29. Rejoice not thou, O Palestinia, because the rod of him that smote thee is broken. For out of the serpent's root shall come forth a cockatrice, and his fruit shall be a fiery flying serpent. God said, Jeremiah fifty-one thirty-four. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, hath devoured me. He hath crushed me. He hath made me an empty vessel. He hath swallowed me up like a dragon. He hath filled his belly with my delicates. He hath cast me out. God said, Genesis 6, verse 5, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Man said, There is no absolute truth. I do what feels good, what fulfills my wants, and I don't need a made-up God to hamper my pleasure. Now the record. Welcome to God Said, Man Said, feature 898, that will once again certify the inerrancy of God's Holy Bible. All of these marvelous features are archived here in text and streaming audio for the edification of the blood-bought and as bait for the fishers of men. Every Thursday Eve, God willing, they grow by one. Thank you for visiting. May God's face shine upon you. The mission of God said, man said, is not to prove that there is a God. The vast majority of the world believes in a God. The mission of God said, man said, is to certify beyond any reasonable doubt that the holy God of the Bible is the God above all gods, and that he authored the Holy Scriptures, the book above all books. From this foundation of truth, the ministry of reconciliation goes forth. The proof count in this series, titled Undeniable Proof, Every Jot and Every Tittle, where we list in rapid fashion one marvelous God-proof after another, begins at 118. Prepare for more beautiful book. Proof, 118, Job 38, verse 36. Who hath put wisdom in the inward parts, or who hath given understanding to the heart? Does the heart really think? 
could the scriptures that refer to the attributes of the heart 884 times be accurate in the most literal form? Of course, the answer is yes. The following excerpts are from Deadly Emotions by Dr. Don Colbert, published in 2003. How can this be? In recent years, neuroscientists have discovered that the heart has its own independent nervous system. At least 40,000 nerve cells exist in a human heart. That's the same amount found in various subcortical centers of the brain. In other words, the heart is more than a mere biological pump. This abundant, these abundant nerve cells, excuse me, they give it thinking, feeling, and capability. The heart's brain and the nervous system relay messages back and forth to the brain and the skull, creating a two-way communication between these two organs. In the 1970s, physiologists John and Beatrice Lacey of Fells Research Institute found the flaw in current popular thinking about the brain. The popular approach was to assume that the brain made all of the body's decisions. The Lacey's research indicated otherwise. Specifically, these researchers found that while the brain may send instructions to the heart through the nervous system, the heart doesn't automatically obey. Instead, the heart seems to respond at times as if it is considering the information that it has received. Sometimes when the brain sends an arousal signal to the body in response to external stimuli, the heart speeds up as might be expected. On other occasions, however, the heart slows down while all other organs are aroused as expected. The selectivity of the heart's response suggested to the Lacy's that the heart does not mechanically respond to the brain's signals. Rather, the heart seems to have an opinion of its own, which it communicates back to the brain. What was even more interesting in the Lacey's research was the fact that the messages that the heart sent to the brain seemed to be ones that the brain not only understood, but obeyed. In effect, heart and brain hold an intelligent dialogue. At times, the heart submits to the brain, and on the other occasions, the brain seems to submit to the heart. The messages from the heart appear to be capable of affecting an individual's behavior. The most powerful channel of heart communication to the body, however, is through the heart's electromagnetic field, which is about 5,000 times greater in strength than the electric magnetic field the brain produces. Finally, from Dr. Colbert. Author and scientist Paul Pearsall described an incident that occurred when he was speaking to an international group of psychologists, uh, psychiatrists, and social workers in Houston, Texas. He was talking about his belief in the central role of the heart in both physical and spiritual life. A physician came up to the microphone to share her story. This is what she told Dr. Pearsall and the others present in the auditorium. I have a patient, an eight-year-old little girl, who received the heart of a murdered ten-year-old girl. Her mother brought her to me when she started screaming at night about her dreams of the man who had murdered her donor. She said her daughter knows who it was. After several sessions, I just could not deny the re reality of what this child was telling me. Her mother and I finally decided to call the police. And using the descriptions from the little girl, they found the murderer. He was easily convicted with the evidence my patient provided. The clothes that he wore, what the little girl he killed had said to him, everything the little heart transplant recipient reported was completely accurate. End of quote. 
Isn't it amazing that, that when science discovers a marvelous truth, it's ballyhooed around the world? Yet the same truth, which has been in the Word of God for thousands of years, is not considered necessary to mention. Some fields of endeavor would call such a thing plagiarism. Proof number 119, Genesis 6, uh, 30, excuse me, verses 30 through 42, and here Jacob speaks to his father-in-law Laban. For it was little which thou hadst before I came, and it is now increased unto a multitude. And the Lord hath blessed thee since my coming, and now when shall I provide for my own house also? And he said, What shall I give thee? And Jacob said, Thou shalt not give me anything. If thou wilt do this thing for me, I will again feed and keep thy flock. I will pass through all thy flock today, removing from thence all the speckled and spotted cattle, and all the brown cattle among the sheep, and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and of such shall be my hire. So shall my righteousness answer for me in time to come, when it shall come for my hire before thy face. Every one that is not speckled and spotted among the goats, and brown among the sheep, that shall be counted stolen with me. And Laban said, Behold, I would it might be according to thy word. And he removed that day the he-goats that were ring-straked and speckled, spotted, excuse me, and all the she-goats that were speckled and spotted, and every one that had some white in it, and all the brown among the sheep, and gave them into the hand of his sons. And he set three days' journey betwixt himself and Jacob, and Jacob fed the rest of Laban's flocks. And Jacob took him rods of green poplar, and of the hazel and chestnut tree, and peeled white streaks in them, and made the white appear which was in the rods. And he set the rods which he had peeled before the flocks in the gutters, in the watering troughs, when the flocks came to drink, that they should conceive when they came to drink. And the flocks conceived before the rods, and brought forth cattle, ring-straked, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob did separate the lambs, and set the faces of the flocks toward the ring-straked, and all the brown in the flock of Laban. And he put his own flocks by themselves, and put them not unto Laban's cattle. And it came to pass, whensoever the stronger cattle did conceive, that Jacob laid the rods before the eyes of the cattle in the gutters, that they might conceive among the rods. But when the cattle were feeble, he put them not in. So the feebler were Laban's, and the stronger Jacob's. Franz Delatich, who wrote the two-volume titled New, Com uh, New Commentary of Genesis in the late 1800s, stated that it is an established fact that white lambs can be guaranteed by placing a multitude of white objects about the drinking troughs. Jacob, being instructed by God, did the exact opposite. The prenatal influence of Jacob's green poplar and of hazel and chestnut trees, all of which had been peeled to reveal white streaks set in the gutters of the watering troughs, caused the sheep's offspring to be ring-straked, speckled, and spotted. The above biblical episode has given us the concept of the Jacob Sheep, as well as a charity in England known as the Jacob Sheep Society. Uh, in 1969, Lady Araminthia uh, Aldington, daughter of the last High Commissioner of Mandatory Palestine, General Sir Alan Cunningham, founded the Jacob Sheep Society. A piece of their research discusses the origin of Jacob's sheep. She writes that Patriarch Jacob 
moved his entire household and flocks and herds to Goshen in Egypt. Jacob's sheep thus traveled from Palestine to Egypt, and so perhaps on to Spain via the coast of North Africa and Morocco. A pair of Jacob's sheep are now residents of the Jerusalem Biblical Zoo. According to the uh, autumn 1984 issue of Vogue Patterns, there is a fabric called Jacob wool. Jacob wool and clothes are separate from other wools, not just because of their rarity, but also as a result of their unusual quality. England is the home of the majority of the world's Jacob sheep, mostly as the fruit of Lady Aldington's society. In conclusion, visual input during conception has a very real effect on sheep and goats. God's word is true and righteous altogether. Proof number 120, Psalms 22, verse 16. For dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. All of creation revolves around Jesus Christ. Even every thought is either pro-Christ, good, wholesome, and true, or anti-Christ, evil, deadly, and false. As you should expect, all of the scriptures tell of Christ, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. In Colossians 1 verse 19, we read, For it pleased the Father, then in him should all fullness dwell. Approximately 1,000 years before the crucifixion of Christ, the Word of God prophesies how the Messiah would suffer and die, and it reads, They pierced my hands and my feet. This is especially noteworthy when one considers that the historical record reports that death by crucifixion was a Roman invention that did not arrive on the scene until several hundred years after Psalms 22 was written. Proof 121, Isaiah 14, verse 29. Rejoice not thou, whole Palestina, because the rod of him that smote thee is broken. For out of the serpent's root shall come forth a cockatrice, and his fruit shall be a fiery flying serpent. Concerning Isaiah's account of fiery flying serpents, the elderly people of Penland, England, spoke of them as late as the early 1900s. Maria Trevelyan uh, tells us the following in William Cooper's book, After the Flood. The woods around Penland Castle, Glamorgan, had the reputation of being frequented by winged serpents, and these were the terror of old and young alike. An aged inhabitant of Penland, who died a few years ago, said that in his boyhood, the winged serpents were described as very beautiful. They were coiled when in repose, and looked as if they were covered in jewels of all sorts. Some of them had crests sparkling with all colors of the rainbow. When disturbed, they glided swiftly, sparkling all over to their hiding places. When angry, they flew over people's heads with outspread wings, bright and sometimes with eyes too, like the feathers in a peacock's tail. He said it was no old story invented to frighten children, but a real fact. His father and uncle had killed some of them, for they were as bad as foxes for poultry. The old man attributed the extinction of the winged serpents to the fact that they were terrors in the farmyards and coverts. God said fiery flying serpents. Men scoff, but history concurs. Proof number 122, Jeremiah 51, verse 34. 
Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon hath devoured me, he hath crushed me, he hath made me an empty vessel, he hath swallowed me up like a dragon, he hath filled his belly with my delicates, he hath cast me out. In 1841, the word dinosaur was coined by Sir Richard Owen, which means terrible lizard. Prior to 1841, these creatures were called, as they were in the scriptures, dragons, behemoth, and leviathan. They lived contemporaneously with man. Evolutionists howl at such an idea, claiming the terrible lizard was long extinct before man appeared. Concerning the long-age claims of pseudoscience, Albert Engels had this to say regarding apparent human footprints in rock and the, and the periodical Scientific American. If man, or even his ape ancestor, or even that ape ancestor's early mammalian ancestor existed as far back as the Carboniferous period in any shape, then the whole science of geology is so completely wrong that all the geologists will resign their jobs and take up truck driving. Hence, for the present at least, science rejects the attractive explanation that man made these mysterious footprints in the mud of a Carboniferous period with his feet. End of quote. Ancient cultures, along with not-so-ancient history, declare the dinosaur. From the Chinese, with their depiction and reverence of the colossal dragon, to the 216 sites of recorded dinosaur activity in England, the terrible lizard is proclaimed. Many places in England, for example, are named after these creatures, with names such as Dragon's Green, Sharp Flight Meadow, Dragon Horde, and so on. Old records that read like a daily police blotter declare so matter-of-factly their encounters with these terrible lizards. The following accounts are documented by William Cooper in his book After the Flood. The giant reptile at Burrs in Suffolk, for example, is known to us from a chronicle of the year 1405. Close to the town of Burrs, near Sudbury, there has lately appeared to the great herd of the countryside a dragon, vast in body, with a crested head, teeth like a saw, and a tail extending to an enormous length. Having slaughtered the shepherd of a flock, he devoured many sheep. After an unsuccessful attempt by local archers to kill the beast, due to its impenetrable hide, in order to destroy him, all the country people around were summoned. But when the dragon saw that he was again to be assailed with arrows, he fled into a marsh or mere, and there hid himself among the long reeds, and was no more to be seen. And in another excerpt, the early Britons, from whom the modern Welsh are descended, provided us with our earliest surviving European accounts of reptilian monsters, one of whom killed and devoured King Morvid. In 360 B.C., he, uh, this happened. We're told in the account translated for us by Joffrey of Mammoth that the monster gulped down the body of Morvid as a big fish swallows a little one. Joffrey described the animal as a beelu. Roland Bird, a paleontologist from the American Museum of Natural History, examined rocks bearing remarkable human footprints that were discovered in a crustaceous claimed to be around a 100 million years old limestone uh, stone foundation excuse me, near Glen Rose, Texas. The following is his statement as published in a 1939 issue of Natural History. Yes, they apparently were real enough, real as rock could be, 
the strangest thing of their kind I'd ever seen. On the surface of each was splayed the near likeness of a human foot perfect in every detail, but each imprint was fifteen inches long. End of quote. Genesis 6 4 said, There were giants in the earth in those days. Proof number 123, Job 41, verses 1, then 14 through 21, 25 through 31, and 33. Canst thou dry out, uh, draw out Leviathan with an hook, or his tongue with a cord which thou lettest down? Who can open the doors of his face? His teeth are terrible round about. His scales are his pride shut up together with a close seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They stick together that they cannot be sundered. By his niecings a light doth shine, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. Out of his mouth go burning lamps, and sparks of fire leap out. Out of his nostrils goeth smoke, as out of a seething pot or cauldron. His breath kindleth coals, and the flame goeth out of his mouth. When he raiseth up himself, the mighty are afraid. By reason of breakings they purify themselves. He esteemeth iron as straw, and brass as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. Sling stones are turned with him into stubble. Darts are counted as stubble. He laugheth at the shaking of a spear. Sharp stones are under him. He spreadeth sharp-pointed things upon the mire. Upon earth there is not his like, who is made without fear. Leviathan, the terrible reptile of the sea, did he exist even as the Bible declares? Mr. Whelan displays on the pages of his book Dragons of the Deep the 50-foot-long, 40-ton sea monster Shonasaurus. The name means the Shoni mountain reptile. Whelan continues, Shonasaurus was adapted as the state fossil of Nevada, the state in which the fossils from which it was first described were found. The location in which Shonasaurus fossils came to light is interesting, too. The Soshone Mountains of Nevada are in the middle of a desert. Yet 36 Shonasaurus fossils were found together there at an altitude of over 7,000 feet. Some have suggested that this unusual grouping could have been from a whole school of these massive reptiles beaching themselves like some whales have been known to do. The problem with this explanation is that we know that such beached whales do not go on to form preserved fossil skeletons. Exposed on a beach, even their skeletons would just fall apart unless they were catastrophically buried. Imagine what sort of catastrophe it would take to suddenly bury and cover 36 school bus-sized creatures. Another evidence of rapid burial and massive water reaction is the fact that the 36 Shonasars were not found in the haphazard directions, but all seemed to be more or less lined up in a north-south direction. This suggests that powerful water currents lined them up when they were washed into place by the catastrophe that preserved them. Since the Genesis flood covered the whole globe, it's no surprise that we find sea creatures in inland regions too, including the tops of high mountains, end of quote. On page 44 in the book Dragons of the Deep, you'll find sarcosuchus that grew up to 40 feet in length, weighing in at 8 tons. A fossilized sarcosuchus was found in 1964 in the Sahara Desert. Proof number 124, Exodus chapter 20, verse 11. 
For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. The earth and its universe are just over 6,000 years old, not billions. God said, man said, has published a host of features that certify this truth. Leading evolutionary scholar Frederick Juniman had this to say in his article titled Secular Catastrophism uh, Printed in Industrial Research and Development. There's been in recent years the horrible realization that radio decay rates are not as constant as previously thought, nor are they immune to environmental influences, and this could mean that atomic clocks are reset during some global disaster. Events which brought the uh, Mesozoic age of the dinosaurs to a close may not be 65 million years old, but rather within the age and memory of man. End of quote. Concerning the age of the earth and dinosaurs living contemporaneously with man, you'll find the following from Derek Isaac's book, Dragons and Dinosaurs. You'll find it enlightening. Lewis Jacobs, author and former president of the Society of Vertebrate Paleontology, stated the implications of this powerful question of man and dinosaurs' coexistence. Such an association would dispel an earth with vast antiquity. The entire history of creation, including the day of rest, could be accommodated in the seven biblical days of the Genesis myth. Evolution would be vanquished. God's word is the inerrant truth. Stake your claim upon it. God said, Job chapter 41, verse 1, Canst thou draw out Leviathan with an hook, or his tongue with a cord which thou lettest down? God said, Isaiah 14, verse 29, Rejoice not thou, whole Palestinia, because the rod of him that smote thee is broken. For out of the serpent's root shall come forth a cockatrice, and his fruit shall be a fiery flying serpent. God said, Jeremiah 51, 34, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, hath devoured me. He hath crushed me. He hath made me an empty vessel. He hath swallowed me up like a dragon. He hath filled his belly with my delicates. He hath cast me out. God said, Genesis 6, verse 5, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Man said, There is no absolute truth. I do what feels good, what fulfills my wants, and I don't need a made-up God to hamper my pleasure. Now you have the record. 